Amen. Lord, we thank you that you do hear our cries. Lord, you hear even our thoughts. Lord, I pray you'd help us, Father, to be those who would walk in intimate fellowship with you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Lord, we wouldn't come visit you for an hour on Sunday. But Lord, we'd have intimate fellowship with you all the time, Lord. And we pray for our time in the Word right now. Minister to our hearts. Draw us near unto you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May our faith grow as we spend time in your Word. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It is great. It is great to have you here. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We're going to finish up the letter to Titus this morning, Lord willing. And we will, uh, you need to come next week because we're going to look at an entire book of the Bible next week. Philemon. It's true, it's only one chapter, all right? So uh, this coming Wednesday will be in 1 Samuel 18. Let me encourage you, CDs and tapes are always free. Help yourself if you don't if you're not able to make it on Wednesday because of work or whatever reason. Uh, grab the grab the CDs. We just looked at David and Goliath last Wednesday. One of my favorite studies in the entire Bible. Great stuff. So let me encourage you to grab a hold of those. Uh, I'll note too that uh, the website always has every message that we've that we've taught here for the most part outside of the first year or so when we didn't have the right equipment. But everything that's ever been taught is on there. It's always free. And I believe you can download it onto MP3. I'm not positive of that, but I think you can. So let me encourage you, let's stay in the Word throughout the week. All right. Let me just briefly catch you up on where we are in Titus. Remember, this is a pastoral epistle, which means it's written from a pastor to a pastor to help him be a pastor in the midst of difficult times. But as we read it, we need to understand that it has great application for us today because this letter was written to the people on the island of Crete written to Pastor Titus on the island of Crete. Crete was a place where being a Cretan was considered a, a, almost a curse word because they were evil, vile, wicked people. And the truth is, as much as we might not want to hear it and might even be offended a little bit by it, the place where we live is not much different. It's a place that needs Jesus in a desperate way. And that doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't love these people because He does a great deal. He loves them so much He'd rather die than live without them. And so we saw in Titus, just in the first chapter, he gave them the practice, or the, excuse me, the protection of the doctrine, of sound doctrine. And he said, protect it by appointing godly men to teach it, and by rebuking false teachers. Put people in positions who will teach the word of God, and remove those who would bring uh, attack against it. Then in chapters 2 and 3, we've been looking at the practice of sound doctrine. How do we live it out? What is doctrine? It's just a big word for truth. So how do we live out biblical truth? And so that's what we've been looking at. Now last week, we began looking at the all-encompassing grace of God. We saw the power of God's grace. The God's grace needs to go beyond just the moment of salvation. The God's grace should be impacting every aspect of our life. And as we saw last week, in the power of God's grace, it saves us from sin It teaches us to live set-apart lives. It keeps us looking up in anticipation of His return. It makes us zealous for good works. and enables us to speak with great boldness. So this morning we're going to move from the power of God's grace to the practice of God's grace. And so if you're a note-taker, there's going to be five points in this morning's message. The practicing of God's grace in the life of the believer. So what should be evident in our lives? If the grace of God has been poured out upon us, again, it must be so much more than just the get out of hell free card when we die one day. It should be impacting how we live every day. 
And the five points we're going to look at, number one, a willing submission to those in authority. This is not easy for us. It's not easy for any of us. But the Lord desires that as we walk in His grace that we would be submitted. Number two, a kind and humble heart that never forgets what we've been delivered from. You know what? We will have a kind and humble heart if we never forget what we've been delivered from. Amen? We'll remain humble. We'll remain broken. We'll remain desperate for God. Because it brings humility to remember all of our sin and all that we have been forgiven. Number three, faith in God's grace and mercy, not our own works. When we're walking in the grace of God, our faith is in His grace, not our works. Number four, it helps us remain focused and faithful in our calling. And lastly, it gives us a heart for people. God's grace, again, should impact more than just our eternal destination. But since we've been justified, it also should impact how we live every aspect of life. So let's begin in Titus 3 at verse 1, looking at the practicing of God's grace in the life of a believer, outward behavior that reflects inward belief. First, we'll see that it brings a willing submission to those in authority. All right, look at verse 1. It says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, remind them. I actually like that. Have you ever been to a church before where the guy repeats himself a lot? You ever been to a church like that? Where he does a lot of review and reminds you of what he said last week and tells you the same thing over and over all the time? Well, you know what? It's biblical. Because it says here, remind them. And we need to be reminded because we forget. Amen? And we need to be reminded that even though we may know it, we need to be reminded to put it into action. Not just to know it, but to live it. Every single day. And so Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now the previous verse he ended in the last chapter, Paul instructed Titus to to speak the sound words of of, of the word, to exhort them, and then to rebuke the false teachers. And now he's saying, remind them to be subject to authority. So what was he going to be exhorting them about? What were the things he was to encourage them about? And chapter 3 really just gets down to the nitty-gritty of the Christian faith, how to live a really practical Christian life. And it should impact every aspect of life as we've been talking about. So the first thing he talks about is to remember to be submitted or subject to the rulers and authority that God has placed over us. First Chronicles, it says, Remember His covenant forever, the word which He commanded for a thousand generations. We need to be reminded of God's word. That's why we need to be in God's word every single day. So what does He remind them? To be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, the word subject means to be willingly submitted. It's not being subject to authorities if we kick and scream all the way. I used to tell my kids, you know, it's not, it's not honoring your mother and father if you stomp your feet up the stairs as you go to do what you've been told to do, right? Okay, I'll go. Now, that's not, now that might be obedience, but it's not honoring. And the word here, to be subject, means to obey willingly, to have a, a willing submission to those who are in authority. Christians are to be even in the midst of ungodly Crete or here in ungodly Santa Cruz, willing to submit to those in authority because all authority has been given by God. And I know all of you have struggled with that at some point. Sometimes we look at those maybe in an elected office in our city or in our county or in our state or in our country. And sometimes, depending who's there, we really struggle. We think, what in the world are these people doing? They got no clue. And even if that's true, 
God's desire is that we would be submitted. God's call and His plan for us is that we would be submitted to those in authority. We submit until we must compromise our faith. Now that submission goes to every aspect of life. It begins in the home. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. It doesn't mean that He is the Lord, because He's not. You know that. You live with Him, right? But we're still to submit because it's an act, not that He's of greater position than you, and it's what it is, is it's, a, it's the calling God has placed upon his life to be the spiritual leader in the home. So too, children are submit to their parents. And again, I know that children struggle with that. We think our parents don't know anything. It's amazing, the older you get, the more you realize how much your parents know. When you're, 18, when you're 15, your parents are really dumb. And when you're 35, you think, man, my parents are the smartest people who ever lived, right? And so the truth is that we are to submit to them even when we do not agree. This carries over into the workplace. You're to submit to your boss. Guys, as Christians, one of the greatest testimonies we can have is to be sold out and set apart for the Lord in the workplace. And not just to be in our words, but in our actions. We should be there five minutes early, not five minutes late. We should give a full day's work. We shouldn't be cutting corners. We should be honoring God in the way that we do our job. Our boss should say, I wish I had a hundred more people like him or like her. What is different about you? You know what? When you do your work as unto the Lord, it makes people want to know about the Lord that you serve. It's also true not only in school, but also in school. Not just in the workplace, but in school. So this means that if you go to school, that you're to submit to the teachers that God has given you. Now again, you maybe you're in college and the, the class you're in, teaches things contrary to the word of God, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But it means that while you're in school, that you realize that God's calling for you is to do your schoolwork as unto the Lord. As I often tell my own children, when you do your schoolwork, you're doing it for Jesus. And when you don't do your schoolwork, you're dishonoring God. He's saying to submit to those, remind them to submit to those. Why did they need to be reminded? Because they lived in Crete. It was a godless place and it would be very easy to excuse away the need to be obedient to those in authority. Well, not only in the home, in the workplace and in the school, but as I mentioned, in the government. Now, in the government, what does that mean? Christians are to be subject to the government and its laws up to the point that the law contradicts the word of God. Only then do we not obey it. But, what laws? Well, the criminal laws. Well, most of us would go, okay, I agree with that. You know, if you, you rob a bank, you should go to jail. Well, how about the tax laws? The Bible says that we are to give unto Caesar what is Caesar. Actually, Jesus said that. And so guess what? When our taxes come due, we should pay them. Amen? And we shouldn't groan and grumble and right? You know, and even if we don't agree, pay it anyway. It's all God's money and he'll take care of you, right? And so give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. What about the traffic laws? Ouch. Your pastor's known to be transparent. I got pulled over about, I don't know, a month and a half ago by one of the guys in our church. How was that? <laughs> Hadn't been pulled over in like five or six years and I get pulled over by Dave Frizzell, the highway patrolman, sitting in the back of the room. So... <laughs> Now, one thing is, you, it's embarrassing to get pulled over by someone who you're their pastor, but it's also kind of a blessing when he exhibits grace and doesn't give you a ticket that you deserve. But the truth is, we are to obey the laws, and we, when we drive or when we 
uh, you know, pay our taxes or everything that we do, we should be faithful and obedient to the Lord and realize that when we go 80 and a 50, we're, we're sinning against God. When we don't pay our taxes and we make, oh, well, you know, the law doesn't really say, pay your taxes. What do you think, what, did you, what would Jesus tell you to do? How fast would you drive if Jesus was in the car? You know what I mean? And what kind of crimes would you be doing? Oh, I wouldn't be doing that, right? You wouldn't, be throwing, you wouldn't be throwing litter out the window if Jesus was in the car, right? And the point is, the Holy Spirit is with us wherever we go. And it's, we need to be reminded to submit to those in authority. Then it says, to obey. Now this again is play, people in places of God-given authority. And while we may all know that we are to obey the word of God, and that obedience is the highest form of worship, it is indeed a recognizable part of the sanctifying process when we obey the laws and those in authority. When we re- rebel, we're disobeying God. When you, diso- when you disregard your boss's orders, you're disobeying God. When you blow off an assignment given by your high school teacher, you're disobeying God. When you ignore the speed limit, you're sinning against Almighty God. God's grace and its impact should not only be on where we're headed eternally, but how we live every single day. That justification, just as if I never sinned, the fact that we've been born again, that we're going to heaven, should impact the sanctification process. The Bible says that faith without works is dead. I truly believe that we ought to be, there's no doubt about it, the most law-abiding citizens on the planet. As Christians, nothing brings harm to the cause of Christ more than someone who proclaims his name boldly and then goes out and lives contrary to his word. Hypocrites have pushed more people away from the kingdom of God than probably anything else. Then it says, to be ready for every good work. This speaks about going beyond a passive obedience. The word ready is prepared for One who doesn't have to be urged or coaxed or persuaded. One whose belief is reflected in their behavior. It's a faith that works. God's grace, again, shouldn't be something where we just say, okay, I will sit back and obey. I will sit back and say, yes, I agree. But you know what? It needs to go beyond that and produce an action in our lives. To submit to those in authority, to obey both the Lord's word and the laws of the land, and to do good works both before God and unto men. Now, to be transparent with you for a minute, you know, God's been putting on my heart the last, I don't know, year or so, just some small things, and this may, again, just a conviction the Holy Spirit's put on my heart, and it can be some of the littlest things in the world, but I've just been trying to be obedient to it. Little things like when I go to the grocery store, opening the door for the women, a woman who's walking by, you know, putting the cart back where it belongs, uh, you know, looking for people who need help, driving along the side of the road and seeing somebody stranded and pulling over. You know, little things like that, because those things turn into divine appointments. When you do the small thing and do everything as unto the Lord, you'll be amazed how God will open doors wide open. And what he's saying here, for every good work, for these good works that God will make available to us as we simply walk in obedience to Him. We don't do good works so God will love us. We do good works because God loves us. Amen? It should be a natural outpouring of someone walking with God. Do you think Jesus would stop if he saw someone stranded on the side of the road? Every time. I'm convinced of it. 
And, you know, God just started convicting my heart. Pull over and help that guy. You know, stop and help that person. You see someone struggling, trying to get something in their car, just stop. And it's a little thing, and sometimes you'd be amazed. I, I jumped a lady's car that was, uh, had a dead battery in the grocery store parking lot the other day, and I had a chance to spend 20 minutes talking to her about Jesus. It was absolutely a divine appointment. I told her I was praising God that her battery died, because God knew that he wanted us to talk. And so here's the point, guys. We need to be ready and available to be used by the Lord. Be ready for every good work. So, in the practice of God's grace in the life of the believer, a willing submission to those in authority. And number two, a kind and humble heart that never forgets what we've been delivered from. Look at verse two. So, we need to be ready for every good work. And then look what it says. To speak evil of no one. Ouch. Anybody convicted by those words besides me? Raise your hand. <laughs> speak evil of no one. It doesn't say speak. Don't speak evil of the people you like. <laughs> Don't speak evil of really nice people. Speak evil of no one. What a clear contrast to the Cretan culture of liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. The Christians were to be different than the world, and our speech should be different. The Bible says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is edifying for the hearer. When I was a youth pastor and in my own home, we have a saying, prayer or praise. I used to tell the youth group kids, if you can't say something nice, pray for them. Can't do either one, shut it, right? <laughs> Prayer or praise. And you know what? What a great thing that we should be teaching our kids. What a great thing we ought to be living out every single day. It's so easy to open our mouths and bag on somebody, isn't it? And we've all done it. We probably all, almost all of us have probably done it this week, right? Just so easy. What a jerk. Wow, what a, you know. and just, or just to bag on somebody. And you know what? The Lord says, speak evil of no one as christians our speech should be seasoned with grace ever mindful that jesus died for the very person we're speaking of remember jesus died for them we need to see them through jesus's eyes that's a prayer i have every morning lord help me to see every person i come into contact with today through your eyes to love them the way you love them and instead of bagging on them to reach out to them amen and so the lord's heart and evil speech what does that include speak evil of no one slander lies gossip tearing down of another's character we should never gossip never means never we should never slander we should not lie tear down another's character it is so easy to do and to to Lash out in anger when we ought to be reaching out in love. This is a good word of exhortation for every single one of us. Amen? Amen? Amen. All right. Then it says, speak evil of no one to be peaceable. The word means not a brawler, not contentious. One who abstains from fighting. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. You guys, we can arrogantly win an argument and lose the war. Win the battle, lose the war. We can make our point and drive someone away from the Lord in making our point. 
But the Lord's calling us. He's calling them in this ungodly place to be peaceable, to be peacemakers. Not to bring division, but to draw people unto the Lord. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Gentle actions are a reflection of a humble heart. The word gentle is meekness. Meekness means strength under the control of your master. When we think of the word meek, we think of a a weak little mouse, right? That's a, a term people think of when they think of meek. And I've come to think of like those Clydesdale horses. Those things that are, you know, weigh, I don't know how many pounds, maybe a thousand pounds, I don't know, and could drag, you know, uh, this building down the street. But the point is, they're meek because they're under the control of their master. And that's what gentleness is. It's strength under control, under his control. Amen? That's gentleness. And that's how we ought to be reaching out to those around us. Again, this is in total contrast to the, the aggression towards others which characterized the Cretan people. Remember, he's writing to the people on the island of Crete and the people are aggressive and angry and bitter and lashing out. And he says, in the middle of all that, you be gentle. Middle of all that, you be peaceable. Even though they're out of control, submit anyway. That's what Jesus did and that's what we ought to do. It also means in the word Greek there, even towards those who attack us. Be gentle even towards those who attack us. A soft answer turns away wrath. You don't overcome evil with evil, you overcome evil with good. Amen? And so it should be exemplified in how we respond. You know, you you find out where you are in in your maturity as a Christian by how you respond when the heat gets turned up. When your flesh wants to lash out, And now the conviction of the Holy Spirit causes you instead to reach out. To apologize. To reach out in love. Then it says there, showing all humility to all men. Guys, when we have truly grasped the grace of God, all that He has forgiven us for, we can only respond in humility. Lest they forget all they had been forgiven and the extent of God's grace, who reminds them of how much they truly had in common with the Cretans. He says, you know what? Be humble. And let me remind you why you should be humble. Verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish. You know, it's good to be reminded of all we once were and all that we've been delivered from. And the fact that This is what we would still be if it were not for God's grace. Amen? We need to be reminded it's God's grace that has transformed us. It's God's grace that has delivered us. And it's God's grace and His mercy that has transformed us. And we should be living differently in light of that truth. Instead of being just like the world. Guys, we shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers act like they don't know God. But we should be surprised when believers do. Amen? And it shouldn't be okay. Well, I can't help it. I live in the world. Well, I can't help it. You know what? I tell you what. Let me, again, let me just be transparent. It's time for us as Christians to stop using the cop-out that we're just like the world. We should not be. It's not okay. Amen? We are aliens here. This is not our home. We ought to be glowing in the dark in this dark and perverse place. Amen? We should be a halogen light in Santa Cruz County. People ought to see Jesus in us. Now, it's it's important to note here. 
That God has showed us grace, but that also means He can show grace to anyone if He's shown it to us. Amen? Amen. That no one's beyond salvation. No one on the island, the perverse island of Crete, was beyond being saved. And no one is beyond salvation in Santa Cruz either. His desire is that none should perish. No, not one. And He says, we ourselves were once foolish. The word foolish there means impressed with our own wisdom. We used to be really impressed with our own wisdom. You know what? If you're still impressed with your own wisdom, get over yourself. Right? You know, you can be really wise compared to me or compared to someone else, but I'm not the, the, you know, I'm not the plumb line. God is. How wise are we compared to Him? Not so much. Not at all. Amen? And you know what he says? We were once foolish. We were once caught up on our own wisdom. We were ignorant of true wisdom. And the picture of humanity apart from God's grace is they're caught up in themselves. Self-focused, proud of themselves, puffing themselves up, really you know, stoked about where they are. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be blessed by God's blessings in our life, but at the same time, we need to realize that apart from Him, we have no wisdom. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient. Disobedient means to know the rules and to choose to disobey anyway. I know the rule, I don't care, and I'm going to disobey anyway. You know what's interesting? He says we were once disobedient. Well, the truth is, we're still disobedient. Amen? Don't we still disobey? How many of you disobeyed God this week? Raise your hand. Oh! You didn't know you were going to church with so many sinners, did you? But here's the truth. Before, when you walked in disobedience, there was no conviction. Before you knew Christ, disobedience was a way of life. Now disobedience is something that brings you to your knees and convicts you and breaks you. Amen? That's a sign of being born again, is a conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit when we disobey God. It hurts us when we hurt our Savior. It hurts us when we hurt the heart of our Heavenly Father. It hurts And that's a sign that we're his children. You too were once foolish. You were once disobedient. Hey guys, he's reminding them, remember this. You should be humble. Why? Because you were foolish before. Don't look at other people and say, well, oh man, I remember when I was like that. You know what? By the grace of God, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would still be like that. The word disobedient is followed then by deceived. The word there in Greek means to be led astray, away from the truth, away from the right way. You were once deceived, walking in the opposite direction of the truth. Just lost, headed, didn't know where you were going, didn't realize what was at the other end of the direction you were headed in. We were all that person. Once I was lost, but now I'm found. Thank you, Jesus. Amen? Lost and had no idea what my life was about. And now he's given me direction, he's given me hope, he's given me peace, and he's given me life and praise his name for it disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. It means to indulge in fleshly desires and passions. The word serving there means to be a slave to it. You used to be a slave to the lust of the flesh. You were a slave to it. It drove your life. It was the passion of your life. It was what your life was all about. Now, Christian, let me talk to you. If you're in a place of being backslidden to the point right now where you are driven by the lust of your flesh every day, It's what controls you and leads you and directs you. When the pastors are up here after church this morning, you need to come up and get right with God. Amen? Amen. 
You know what, because it's so easy for us, even as Christians, to get right back. The enemy wants nothing more than to draw you back into your old way of life. He wants to draw you back into that old favorite sin of yours. Get your eyes back on the things of this world. Make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. It doesn't mean that we're no longer saved, but it does mean that our testimony is blown and we're no longer effective for God's kingdom. Guys, I want to live a life sold out for God that impacts a lost and dying world. How about you? And we're we're not going to do that if we're living a life of compromise. And he says, so remember, this is who you once were, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, pursuing the flesh and its desires instead of pursuing the Lord and His will. Then it says, living in malice and envy. The word malice there is to hate with the intent of doing harm. You know, the world we live in today is becoming more and more fierce. Isn't it? Isn't it amazing the things that people are entertained by today? People are entertained by movies where people are just lopping off people's heads and slaughtering people and killing people. And it's like, this is great entertainment. And it's what people you know, go out and spend money to watch. We're, we're so intrigued by, by hatred and anger. And he says, you used to live that way. He's reminding the, the Christians in Crete, you know, you used to live with hatred in your heart. And you know what? It should be a reminder of the Christians at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz you used to live with hatred in your heart until you met Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that there should, be no hatred, there should not be hatred anymore. It says, malice and envy. This is more than just jealousy. It's not only do I want what I want, but it's I want what I want and I don't want anybody else to have what I want. That's what envy means. I want it and I don't want you to have it. I don't, if there's two, I want both of them. You know, get all you can, right? You know, get all you can, can all you get, spoil the rest, and nobody else can have any, right? I mean, get everything, keep it for yourself. And he says, this is who you were apart from Christ. You were self-centered, self-motivated. Your passion was all about feeding your flesh. Then it says, hateful and hating one another. No brotherly love, no affection for others, constantly in a place of ill will, towards others, places of contentions and strife and bitterness and anger. Why would why we as Christians must be mild and gentle toward those who are evil? Because we need to contrast the world that we live in. Guys, the world is filled with contentions and filled with anger and filled with strife and filled with bitterness. And the Lord wants us to be right in the middle of that, filled with love and joy and peace and gentleness and kindness. Amen? That's because that's exactly what Jesus did. People were screaming out his name. They were blaspheming his name. They were spitting in his face. They were mocking him. And he just loved them anyway. Help us to be more like our Savior. Again, these things describe the world. And he's reminding them, this is who you used to be. And because this is who you used to be, you should be humbled by the fact that God has transformed your life. You shouldn't be proud. You shouldn't be arrogant that you're not like that anymore. You should realize it's only because of God's grace that you have become kind and gentle and humble. Again, we should never forget where we've been and that none are beyond saving. No one's too hard. No place is too difficult by the grace of God. I was once that. I'm not anymore by the grace of God. And if your life has been transformed by God's grace, you need to share this powerful truth with all those who are still lost. 
Everyone can be saved. If there's people you stop praying for because you think they're beyond salvation, start praying for them again. Amen? Amen. Keep praying, even in Crete, even in Santa Cruz. So what exactly was it that changed these Cretans into Christians? What happened? What changed them? It wasn't good works, but it was God's love. Look at the, we saw a willing submission to those in authority, a kind and humble heart that never forgets where we've been delivered from. Number three, in practicing the grace of God in the life of a believer, is faith in God's grace and mercy, not in our good works. Look at verse four. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. When we were in the place of disobedience and deception and serving our own lust and filled with malice and envy and hate, and we foolishly were caught up in our own arrogance about our wisdom, Jesus showed up. Because it says there, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, we were rescued from our wickedness by the love of God who reached out to us by sending his, his Son, who rescued us from our sin. The love of God was made manifest in the flesh, and His name is Jesus. God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love of God that transformed our lives, guys. And it should be the love of God flowing out of us that impacts the lives of the people around us. Guys, people are not going to run to Christ because you come across with a really great argument and make them feel foolish. Not effective. You know what is going to impact their life? When you love them the way that Jesus does. When your tool's in the hands of your master. When someone needs a hug, the Lord wants to give it to them and he uses your arms. When someone needs a word of encouragement and he uses your lips. When you make yourself available to be a tool in His hand. That's when people are impacted by the love of Jesus Christ. You know what? The love of God is not some abstract theory that we have to try to wonder what it's like. Jesus said to the apostles, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the love of God looks like? Look at Jesus Christ. Amen? And so too, we ought to live a life that if people want to know what the love of God looks like, they can look at us. Now that's a hard task to fulfill. It's a hard thing to do. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Amen? So too our faith and our love for God in our lives must be, go beyond just a theory and be living it out practically. Our faith in God's grace, again, as it was manifested by the Son. And praise God that He showed His love for us by sending us His Son. I mean, Incredible. That God came to earth. We've heard it a million times. We need to be reminded one million and one. We need to be reminded that Almighty God came to earth out of love for the people in this room. But it says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. Guys, our salvation didn't come because of what we've done. Salvation is not earned by our good works, but freely received by God's grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. Our very best, our righteousness is not good enough. The Bible tells us that our best is as filthy rags. Well, man, that kind of, that's kind of rough for my self-esteem. 
The best I got is filthy rags? Man, that's kind of harsh. You know what? You won't realize you need a Savior till you realize you're a sinner. Amen? And so your very best is not good enough. Now, at the same time, you can be a tool in the hand of your master, and he can take what little you have, like the loaves and fishes of the young boy who was available, and multiply it to impact everyone who's there. God can use you in a mighty and a powerful way when you're in his hands, but you in your own hands of no value to the kingdom of God. Our best works are as filthy rags. We are to esteem Him only. His grace, His mercy, His sacrifice. He saved us. We shouldn't magnify our filthy rags, but we should magnify His righteousness. Our belief in Christ is the only path to salvation, guys. It's what He's done. So it's not candles or crawling or rituals. But it's according to His mercy. No matter how many good works we do or rituals we observe, we cannot save ourselves. Let me say that again. You cannot save yourself. Impossible. You can't be good enough. If God had one sin in heaven, He'd have earth part two. And all of you already raised your hand about sinning last week, so we all know you're sinners. Amen? (laughs) So we need Jesus. Guys, giving to charity doesn't take away your sin. Trying to be a good person doesn't take away your sin. You know what? In and of themselves, by themselves, praying, uh, baptism, church attendance, giving, reading your Bible, these are all good things, but you know what? By themselves, they cannot save you. You know why? Because Jesus has to be a part of the equation. It's Jesus who saved you. He died for you. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Our salvation comes through Him and in Him and by Him, and only He should be glorified for our salvation. We we, we should be so humbled by the fact that we're saved. Amen? So humbled. Not, yeah, I want, yeah, I want a child of the king. That's me. Yeah. He's fortunate to have me. He adopted me. I'm chosen. I'm one of the elect. That's me, right? You know what I mean? And here's the point. It should be, God chose me. Even me. He that knows me best loves me most. I'm blown away. I can't believe the incredible grace of God. So how did he save us? Look what it says. But according to... To his mercy, he saved us. The word mercy, again, is a gift word. It's not a works word. Salvation is a free gift. If we had to earn it, it wouldn't be a gift. It would be a paycheck. So how does he, by his mercy, save us? Look what it says, the rest of that verse. According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration there means again birth or birth again or to be born again. A new birth, a fresh start has washed away our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new and praise God for that. When you were saved, the person you used to be died. Your sins were washed away, separated as far as the east is from the west. We need to stop making excuses for the reason I don't serve God more is because of these things in my past. He's forgiven them. He's forgotten them. 
He's wiped them out. Why are we still talking about them? But yet, well, oh, I'd love to serve God. But, you, you know, when I was nine, I had a neighbor who was just really tough on me, and I just can't get over it. You know what? We need to get past that and realize that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God wants to use my life. He didn't save me. So again, that I could just be sitting on the sidelines. He saved me to use me for His glory. He's regenerated us. He's renewed us by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The word there, washed, I love this word, because it means to cleanse completely. We've been completely cleaned. Not by good works, not by religious rituals, not by coming to church, not by lighting a candle. But through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, He has washed away our sins. Then it says He renews us. He regenerated us by the washing and regeneration, and He renews us by the Holy Spirit. Guys, when you're saved, He doesn't just say, okay, I've cleansed you, now good luck. He cleanses you, and then it says, you know what? He told the apostles, I'm going away, you wait, and I'm going to send you another helper. And when Jesus left, he sent the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit lives inside of you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And the only reason that there's any fruit in our lives is because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. The only good that happens, the only time we open our mouth and say the right thing is when we stop talking and let the Holy Spirit speak. Amen? That's when good happens. Less of us and more of Him. Gives us the power to walk in this new life. He regenerates us into newness of life, and now He gives us the power to walk in that life. Again, our God doesn't just leave us alone. We didn't deserve it. He reached out to us. He cleanses us by grace and mercy, and He empowers us by His Spirit to walk in faithful obedience. Guys, it's not okay to live lives in rebellion and say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven anyway. If that's all that really matters, well, no, that's not true. It's a great thing that we're going to heaven. We should never take that lightly. But it does matter how we live now. It matters to God, and that ought to be enough. Amen? It matters to Him. Look at verse 6. Whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You know, I love this. The Father sent the Son, and the Son pours out the Spirit. The Father sent the Son... And then when the Son left, He poured out the Spirit upon us, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus said in Luke 24, Behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. A fruitful walk, a fruitful ministry is apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit poured out upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ. Our Savior is sufficient for whatever we need to live a sanctified life. No matter what your circumstances are, the Holy Spirit inside of you is sufficient for you to walk godly in the midst of it. We can't blame the world for our sin all the time. Well, it's the world. Well, that's true. There's temptation in the world. But God's Word tells us that with temptation, He makes the way of escape. And He has empowered us to walk holy lives. We're in a country, in a city, and even a church that's filled with victims. I can't change. I can't succeed because. It's always, there's always a reason why. We're a bunch of victims. Well, I would, but I can't because. Guys, we're new creations in Christ filled with the Spirit of the living God. 
Boy, should we, if, what, can you imagine if we just absolutely really live that way? What in the world would happen? Santa Cruz would get turned right side up. Amen? Lord, help us. We're not to look at our lives in light of our past struggles or surrounding circumstances, but look at our lives in light of who we are in Christ, who can deliver us from any circumstance, help us overcome any struggle. God's grace impacts not just our eternal destination, but our daily walk. And look what it says in verse 7. That having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal glory. So we've been justified just as if I never sinned by His grace. So by His grace, it's like I never even sinned. My sin's been washed away. But it doesn't stop there. Having been justified, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, justified means to render just or to render innocent. So he's done that for us by his grace. He's declared us righteous. But when we became justified, we also became heirs. One who receives his allotted possession because of his right as a son or daughter. You know what an heir is? An heir is somebody who gets something, again, not because they've earned it, but because of who they are and their birthright. Guys, we are heirs to heaven because we've been born again and now we are children of the king. That's why we're going to heaven. Because we're children of the king. We're his adopted sons and daughters and we are joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of what? It says they're heirs of eternal life. The word hope there means assurance. So by His grace, we are heirs of a heavenly inheritance and it's not something we hope we're going to get. That word hope means that we are assured of it. Guys, we're going to heaven. That ought to change our perspective on everything. You know what? We ought to think different about death in the world. Amen? We ought to think different about sickness, about struggles, about trials, about illness, about everything. Why? Because we're going to heaven. And my father has a cattle on a thousand hills. And he didn't say, he saved me to use me. He knows everything about me. He's allowed it to come into my life. Lord, be glorified through it. And Lord, give me an eternal perspective. Then it says, verse 8, This is a faithful saying. This is true and sound doctrine that cannot fail. Here's what it is. And these things I want to affirm to you constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. This is a faithful saying. Everything I've told you so far, he's saying, are good and faithful sayings. Everything I've told you up to this point, you can trust in it. You can believe that it's true. And these things I want you to affirm constantly. What is he saying? The things I've just taught you, I want you to affirm to those around you. What are the things? That He justifies lost sinners. That He cleanses and regenerates. That He empowers with the Holy Spirit and that we have the promise of heaven. Those are the things that have just been imparted to the Christians in the land of Crete in a place filled with ungodliness. And He says, these things are true and I want you to affirm them constantly. I want you to talk about them. I want you to remind, Titus, remind them every day they've been justified from their sin. Remind them every day that they've been cleansed and made new creations in Christ. Remind them every day they've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Remind them every day of the promise of heaven. Guys, it ought to change our perspective about everything. You sin, you've been forgiven. 
You're going through a tough time, Holy Spirit's with you. And you don't know what the future holds. You know who holds the future, and you know you're heaven bound. Amen? You know you're going to spend eternity with Almighty God. Then it says that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Those who believe in God ought to live different. Our belief ought to impact our behavior. High school kids, you ought to be different on your campus than everybody else. You should be different. You shouldn't be like all the other students. Well, man, yeah, but, you know, but I, you know hey, it's, uh, I'm a teenager. and uh, Daniel was a teenager. If you're here last Wednesday night, David, teenager. The whole army of Israel is sitting there. Nobody wants to go down and fight Goliath. A teenage boy filled with the Holy Spirit shows up, and he's the only one filled with the Holy Spirit. And because he is, he goes down and fights the 10.5-foot, 750-pound giant and drops him with a rock. How does that happen? Because the Holy Spirit was upon him. I've said it many times in the last few weeks. Any dead fish can go with the flow. Anybody can be just like the world. Amen? Anybody. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we ought to be different. You know, we're too busy trying to be like everyone else. Why don't we just try to be like Jesus? Why don't we quit worrying about how we fit in with the world and let's just be faithful to Him? And if we're faithful to Him, we won't fit in with the world. So stop trying. Amen? Be careful to maintain good works. Your belief ought to impact behavior. And then it says, these things are good and profitable to men. God's word is not restricting, but it's profitable. When we share the word of God with people, it's profitable. There's a lie that still may be told today, even in some churches, that the word of God is not profitable. But the word of God is the only thing that will profit a man who is lost. He doesn't need pop psychology. He doesn't need 12 steps to financial freedom. or he, You know what he needs? He needs to hear the truth of the gospel taught with great boldness. And you know what else? He needs and she needs a co-worker who lives it out in front of them every single day. They need someone when they're on the side of the road that just pulls over and shares Jesus with them. Lord, help us to be salt and light and to impact this county for the kingdom of God. Pastor Titus Paul's telling them your purpose is to affirm constantly the word of God, the truth of the gospel. Keep telling the people what the word says. Don't stop. The temptation will be to stop. The temptation will be to get another message. They've heard it before. Don't stop. Keep telling them they need to hear it again and again and again. Why do we keep coming to church every week, every Sunday? We come to worship, but we come to be reminded of God's grace and His mercy and the power of His word. Amen? And we need to hear it again and again. The practicing of God's grace in the life of the believer, a willing submission to those in authority, a kind and humble heart that never forgets what we've been delivered from. Our faith is in God's grace and mercy, not our own good works. Fourth, we remain focused and faithful to our calling. This is what happens when God's grace gets a hold of our lives. Look what it says. Verse 9. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they, un, they are unprofitable and useless. Let me read that again. Avoid, avoid. The word avoid there means turn your face the other way. Turn your face the other way from foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. Let's quickly go through those. What are foolish disputes? Unprofitable and useless arguments over non-essentials. Well, a church is filled with that today, isn't it? 
People debating about something that is absolutely going to be irrelevant in eternity. But I believe that we should, when you baptize, you should put them forward and not backward, and you should do this. And Stop, right? I mean, you know, we can sit there and fight and argue and debate about things, or we can reach out to people that need to hear about the love of Christ. People debating about which day and what time and how the thing and what you should wear and what you should dress and what kind of music and what. Irrelevant. It's the cause of Christ. It's the cross of Calvary. These are foolish disputes and sadly they're most oftenly done with great pride and arrogance. Well, I've been studying. You'll sit down and listen to me for a few minutes. I'll straighten you out on this issue. That's a phone call I get about once a week. Really? Well, you know what? Send me a note or something so I can delete it when you email it to me, you know. <laughs> because, guys, we can just spin our wheels and waste our time. You know what the word foolish there is? It's funny. In a way, people get upset, but the word there is moron. Moros, where we get the word moron. It's foolish and godless to get involved in these disputes that don't mean anything in eternity. Guys asking you questions. Can God make a rock so heavy he can't lift it? I've been asked that question seriously. No, really, dude. What do you think? <laughs> Who cares? That's what I think. Amen? These are foolish disputes. We want to sit there and, you know, think in this high level somewhere, and the person next to us doesn't know God. We're in our cubicle, emailing back and forth, arguing how many angels can fit on the head of a pen, and the person next to us is going through a disaster in their life and needs to hear about the love of Christ. He said, avoid these foolish disputes that are, are irrelevant and start reaching out to people with the love of God. Amen? Why don't we focus on that instead? Instead of Christians debating Christians, why don't we reach out to the lost with the love of Jesus Christ? We need to get involved. We need not to get involved in these foolish arguments over the non-essentials. Again, the people in Crete were dying. Again, real quickly, I, I shared this with you before. I was in India. India is, God's doing a work there, but there's a billion people in India. And a small percentage are saved and more are getting saved all the time. And I met a Christian guy working in the hotel. And that's a rarity there. You have to understand this. And all he wanted to do was debate me on what name you should be baptized in. And it was during Diwali, the high Hindu holiday, there were all these pagan, uh, you know, Idols all over the place and people worshiping idols on every street corner. You can't walk 15 feet without seeing an idol. And he wants to debate me on whose name you should be baptized in. Is the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit or just the name of Jesus? Which name should we baptize? And he's arguing with me and bringing me verses day after day. And I'm like, dude, how many people did you walk by on the way to my room that are dying and going to hell without Jesus? Go talk to one of them. Let's quit debating. Who cares? Ultimately, now again, I want to say this. The Bible's pretty clear on that, and he and I disagreed, and he wanted to argue. But let's not argue. Let me, let's get a stack of tracks. You take half, I'll take half. Let's go on the street and, sh- and hand them out. Let's do that instead. Then it says, not only foolish disputes, but genealogies. In those days, people were trying to link their lineage to a certain tribe or priestly line, and they thought their genealogy would make them more spiritual. Even today, you'll find people trying to find Jewish blood somewhere in their past because somehow they think that makes them more spiritual. Guys, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, nor barbarian nor Scythian in the eyes of God anymore. There's believer and unbeliever, amen? Amen. So let's not get caught up in what our, our genealogy is. Paul had the genealogy to beat all the genealogies. You know what he told them? I counted as nothing. 
I count it as dung. It's nothing. Who cares? Genealogy is of no value. God is not impressed with your heritage. You're not going to... Judgment Day, yeah, Lord, I'm 164th I'm one Jewish. Do you remember that? I got the genealogy. I paid 50 bucks for it. I traced it back from the tribe of Judah. Same tribe, me and you. Same tribe. <laughs> While godly parents and, God, and grandparents are a blessing from God, being related to them won't save you. Amen? Then he says contentions. This just means quarrels and wranglings and debates. Christians should not be contentious but peaceable. Then it says strivings about the law. The attempts to make the Old Testament law a requirement for salvation were going on in those days. It's Jesus plus all these laws you got to keep. And we say, well, we don't do that anymore. Yes, we do. It's Jesus plus you got to keep these other 12 rituals in our church, in our way, or you're not going to heaven. We're adding to the cross of Calvary. And he very clearly tells them we should not be striving about the law. In those days, they strived about the Sabbath. I read one this week. I'd never read this one before. They said you couldn't spit on the Sabbath because you spit on the Sabbath, it would go into the dust and it would dig a furrow into the ground and that was considered plowing on the Sabbath. They turned God's word, they turned a day of rest into a day of burdens. And that's what happens when we're striving about these unprofitable things, striving about the law. God is, if God could be grieved... For they are unprofitable and useless. It's unprofitable and useless. These disputes are of no value. Titus, stay on task. Preach the word. Proclaim the gospel. Don't get caught up in this stuff. Then it says, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. A divisive person is someone who's trying to divide and destroy the church over these very foolish things that he's telling him to have nothing to do with. And he says, warn him once, warn him twice, then kick him out of the church what he told him right reject the device of man after the first and second admonition come to him twice and say quit being divisive if he continues remove him he's saying look quit having him debate over how many you know angels he can get on the head of a needle if he's going to divide the church over that send him packing remove him before he causes harm Reject a divisive man. Divisive people are willing to divide and destroy to prove a point. And he says, you don't want them in your midst. Verse 11, knowing that such a person is warped. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Divisive, warped and sinning, self-willed, self-condemned. Pastors don't enjoy dealing with such people, but the truth is that To be warped is proclaiming a perversion of the truth. Sinning means to miss the mark. And when you allow that to run rampant in the church, it only brings others down. Let's close with these final verses as he says goodbye in this letter. We see the heart he has for people. Then he says in verse 12, When I sent Artemis, who we don't see listed anywhere else in the Bible, to you, or Tychicus. Tychicus was one of Paul's really close Uh, friends and helpers. He had traveled with him. He'd been in prison with him before. He was the guy that delivered the letters to the church at Colossae in Ephesus. This was one of his closest friends. He says, when I send Artemis to you or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. 
I notice just the heart for the people and that before he has Titus leave his church to come visit him, he's going to make sure he sends somebody to watch over and care for those precious people. That's the heart of a pastor. Send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. I read a commentator who said, I didn't know there were any Christian lawyers, Zenos the lawyer, but there are. <laughs> and we actually need more of them, amen? amen? We really do. I have people call the church office all the time looking for a Christian lawyer, and I don't really have someone to refer them to. I think we need more of them, really. If you know of one, let me know. And it says Apollos. Now, remember Apollos, he was a guy that was a learned Jew, mighty in the Scriptures. He became a, a godly teacher. He was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. And here he is, Paul's way a, a great distance away, under, undergoing his own persecution. And he's reminding them, you send those missionaries out and you make sure their needs are cared for. What a good word. Here's the heart for people from a pastor, hun- miles away, hundreds of miles away, saying, send those missionaries out and make sure their needs are are cared for, that they lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. Paul reiterates one of the main purposes of the letter, to to exhort the church to be faithful in good works. And then lastly, he says, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. His farewell greeting goes all the way back to how he started sharing the grace of God with these precious people living in a land filled with godlessness. So, the practicing of God's grace in the life of the believer, one, a willing submission to those in authority. Number two, a kind and humble heart that never forgets what we've been delivered from. Number three, faith in God's grace and mercy, not our own good works. Number four, remaining focused and faithful in your calling. And then lastly, having a heart for people. Guys, God's grace must impact more than our eternity, but how we live every single day. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this letter, though written 2,000 years ago, is just as relevant today to our lives here in Santa Cruz. Lord, help us to be salt and light. Help us, Lord, to reflect you in the way that we love and, and live. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would not be satisfied with a saved soul and a wasted life. But Lord, we would live sold out and set apart for you. Father, we pray for divine appointments even this week. We pray for opportunities, Lord, to be tools in the hands of our Master. Lord, may you be glorified. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.